Welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our event with director Luca Guardinino, where he discussed his latest film, Bones and All, with fellow director Aleem Khan. Luca spoke with Aleem about how he created the film's universe through production design, visuals and sound, and about working with his two terrific leads, Timothée Chalamet and Taylor Russell. We hope you enjoy. Hello. Hello. The most terrifying crowd, colleagues. <laughs> Hi, guys. How are you? You know that I only loved in my life directors. <laughs> Luca, thank you so much for asking me to have this chat with you. Um, I think we met about a year ago. And uh, we've stayed in touch since. And I first saw the film at the London Film Festival. I was sitting in the same row with your auntie. Ah. And um, <laughs> it was a beautiful screening, and she's here as well. Um, I was... I didn't read anything about the film before I went in. I knew it was about cannibals and a love story. Um, and I was quite surprised by how moved I was, actually. I wasn't expecting that. I thought it was going to be more of a horror, if that makes sense. And the love story between these characters, that isolation, that grief uh, was the thing that I kind of, that I, that I really felt. Um, I wanted to start by asking at what point the project, it was written by David Kajanik, who you've worked with before, he's a good friend of yours. At what point did the project come to you into your orbit, and how did that? How did it start? Um, it came quite lately because, vis-à-vis uh, uh, -vis the, the, the length of time they spent in developing it, this was supposed to be made by another colleague, and I I've been called by David, and David um, um, asked me the, the, if I was interested in the project, uh, which I had heard something in the past. And I was quite overwhelmed by things to do. And I said, I think I can't consider it. But he insisted in, make, in, ask, in asking me to read it. So I said, OK, I will read it. But I will read it for the pleasure of your writing, because I really like the way David writes. Um, but when I started reading it, um, first of all, the script was, uh, uh, after I read the book, I realized an evolution of the book in a way, because the dynamic was different like in the book she's abandoned by the mother and she looks for the father and in the movie it's the other way around and then it's set in the 90s and and david put it back into the 80s backward um so when i started reading the script i i completely started to fall in love with the characters and in reading the script i truly didn't it didn't click on into me that i was reading a horror movies script it was a movie about loneliness and disenfranchisement and the need for contact between people um, and for um, what is the burden of identity. Was there, was there something specific when you were reading that spoke to where you are now in your career, in your life, with these characters? Because you've, you've explored characters that are on the fringes, that are kind of outside this binary kind of social structure. 
What was it specifically that spoke to you now? Why, is this, why did you make this film now? I don't know if I knew this answer like in plain sight. Hmm. It was more about understanding how I could do the movie. I, I don't want a script I don't want to be second guessing a script. You know, when I read a script, I don't want to know how it's written, that how it's going to end up being. I want to be stimulated and challenged by the script. I think it was more about that. I wasn't looking for, uh, I, I, I never look for a thematic to talk to me somehow directly. And then I choose things that eventually, if you adapt to what the thing I did in, in my, my path in cinema, uh, they're all about, They all are about uh, people who are kind of off the center of things. I think that like, what I loved about the film when I saw it was there was a kind of universality to it in a strange way, but the, the cannibalism of it really isn't the thing for me. It was, there's a metaphor in that which I think is very open. And actually on the first time that I saw it, I was thinking of Call Me By Your Name for some reason. I was thinking, and it wasn't just because Timothy was in it. I was, there was something about the nature of these characters that they cannot escape. It's in their DNA, and their very nature others them in society. And there was a kind of queer subtext that I read the first time that I watched it. Just from my own perspective, that's how I felt it. And, and then I watched it twice. The second time I watched it, it became much more a film about grief, grieving for the answers that we don't get. The, the, I think the par parents that let us down and, and how we are often abandoned and we're grieving that. That's the thing that kind of spoke to me um, the second time I read it. You mentioned that you set you changed it, you put it into the 80s. What was it about that time period that appealed to you for the film version? What was it specifically about the 80s? I think that was something that Dave came about with, and I believe it was because um, the movie is set in, in the Midwest, particularly in Ohio, not all, but part of it. And he is from the Midwest, he's from Ohio. And uh, growing up in Ohio in the 80s, it must have been something more intimate to him. And I think that was his... Uh, immediate uh, um, decision coming from where, where, that's where it was coming from at the same time for me as well uh, 80s were and 1988 which is the time in which the movie set it was uh, when I was 17 like Maren um, so it was really um, sentimental for, of, for me and of me to wanting to go back to that period of time which of course um, was a moment of my life where I wasn't completely in understanding of, of who I was, what I wanted, even though I, I was quite determined of what I wanted. But at the same time, I didn't know how to get it. Um, so it's, there's always a pleasure to go back to that decade for me. Mm. I guess there's... Um I guess there are challenges in setting a film in, in a specific time period, but what were the benefits for the story in terms of the texture that came from the 80s and also a time that I think really served the story and these people can, can vanish, can disappear. There is I think that's one aspect of it, which is more like practical, yes. story-wise. They cannot be traced. 
um, even though I believe that invisibility is, is something that can, is, is, you know, if someone wants to be invisible or if we decide that someone is invisible, that's something that's going to happen anyways. Uh, it's more about, uh, you know, like we started to research a lot uh, those those world the world of the Midwest in the eighties, and we had this amazing team of researchers who I suggested them to try to get into um, houses of families and ask them to to borrow us pictures, family pictures of the eighties, and we collected so many of these pictures, which is something we, I already did with the Crema, the village where we shot "Call Me by Your Name," because like there is that I, the one thing is the idea of making a movie about a period of time. One thing is yes. to try to understand the time and try to make the movie as if you are filming in the moment of the time of the film. So we learned, for instance, that the Midwest uh, mm. had this kind of like. Um, there was a sort of bridge between um, the 50s and the 80s. Um, it felt like that very strongly. Um, you could see that they were holding very much onto that kind of decor and that kind of like modesty of mm. this kind of Eisenhower kind of full of, of, of like hopefulness that came, came from the, with the 50s and this kind of like pleasantsville quality to it but yet you could see also some kind of like crack in the surface that were about to show the nature of the Reagan times it reminded me also of a movie that I truly love that is Peggy Sue got married Peggy Sue in the 80s wakes up in the 50s you know um, or the glorious back to the future and it truly was like that there was something about that two decades that in a way were kind of uh, normative and at the same time very cruel. When did you, so you had the researchers kind of getting stuff for you, but when did you go out and get under the skin of these communities and what was that like and what did you, because I think like what, reading and seeing things you get a perception of a place but it's different to obviously being there. How I'm curious about your scouting, your journey. We didn't do scouting, we just go, went adrift in the Midwest for a, for a long month, few months before shooting. Oh, right. I went with Elliot Hostetter, the production designer, and with Arseni Kachaturan, the director of photography, yeah. and with, with my post-production supervisor, Daniel Venturelli. We went, we got the car, and we drove, we drove, and drove, and drove. And we were going to the places that were described in the script, but not looking for locations, but we were... Mm. I, I need to, to understand that. And so we went for a month... Did that change how the story or the characters, did you find new characters to bring into the script from interactions with the people that you met there on that Well, that I understood time? the vernacular and I understood the, 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 the kind of like uh, the features of these places and, and, mm. and of the people. I also understood that the, the, the level of uh, disenfranchisement, the inequality that is uh, imbued and uh, like, like constitutional to the way in which and the capitalism work was quite severe in that in those areas, and there was something about wilderness in, in America. You know, like it coexists with civilization very strongly. We could be in a village where you had like these houses being repainted, and in front of it, um, other houses that were really like letting be decaying and nesting wild animals. This was really fascinating. And actually, that just talking on that, there is a kind of recurring visual motif in the film 
of you're seeing these kind of um, these houses, but there's these pylons often in the film and also these chimneys from power stations. I, when I watched it the second time, I really noticed the bridge between the first image and the last image in the film. I was curious about, for me, I thought it was very beautiful in that the paintings are these, these teenage paintings. They're from their imagination. And the ending is almost, is this kind of dream space that these two characters are in again. What, what was the... I'm curious about why you chose... I'm always curious about why people choose the first image, what, what that is. Was that always in the script? Was that always in your mind? And what, what were you kind of doing through using that tableau of those, uh, those, those vistas and kind of interrupted with those pylons? I don't think it was in the script, and I and I in in production I I understood that we needed a little prologue. I like prologues and epilogues, and the prologue was images of of the landscape of America seen through the perspective of teenagers' artwork. Um, and I love the idea of juxtaposing this vastness of the land and the wilderness of the land with this kind of like like imposing uh, civilization. And, and the, at the end, also that wasn't in the script. The script ended in a different way. Uh, but I thought the movie had to be very romantic and I thought the movie had to invest all itself into this very deep love story and kind of like a, this kind of quest for the possible in the impossible that Marin and Lee go for. So I, I, we felt that uh, we had to go back to them somehow. Are they in heaven? Are they dreaming were they saying we want to be people and then they fall asleep and they dreamt and had the nightmare of what could have happened to them and they wake up in the morning i don't know it's up to whoever sees the film to decide but i thought that this image was quite uh, ambiguous but at the same time soaring and also reminded me of gilbert and george motto they always say never put the landscape empty and of the human because it's obscene you need to put the couple making love in the, in the landscape to make it not a fascist image. Yes. <laughs> That's what they say. I agree with them. So this was your first time filming in America. How was that? It was very like exhausting process because we were shooting on the road. We shot not in all states that are listed in the movie. Did you see in the... Yeah, that are listed with mm. this beautiful Peter Saville graphics. But... Uh, um, we went for many of them, and so we had to change constantly location, constantly um, gearing up the car, the car, camera car, and all this was quite tiring, yes. How long was your production? The shoot was 40 days, all in. Wow. And were you able to shoot in a kind of chronological order? Almost. Okay. Yeah, we opened, we, sh we started shooting with, the, with Marin and, and with like, uh, Taylor Russell and uh, the great Andre Holland and the great Taylor Russell. And then we end up shooting the last scene that you saw as the last scene that we shot. I think it's like Barry Jenkins talks about, he always says like how he's his like, best version of himself during production. It's the opposite for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of like, ugh. I don't like myself when I'm on set. I think it can bring out like the best. I think it <laughs> brings up the best and the worst in people. It's discomfortable. I'm lazy. I want to stay on a couch, but I can't. <laughs> and actually, I don't want to answer questions. 
But you have like, I, I don't know, 300 questions a day to answer. But like, I think Scorsese is the same. You see photos of him behind the camera on set and he's like grimacing. He hates, he, it's not that he hates what he's seeing, but it's, it's such a frustration. Is, is there a part of the process that you actually enjoy? In the shooting, I like the epiphany that happened when you see a moment of performance that is un unavoidable and it's fantastic. Sometimes you discover the great performance on, on, on edit, in, in the editing room. Yeah. Uh, and the, the editing is the most beautiful process for me. Preparation and editing I love because you dream of the movie and you know what you want to do, but at the same time you realize that what you want to do is not achievable, so you have to adapt. Mm. But that happens. You think you have the time of the world, you know, when you're prepare, prepare, preparing a movie, and then suddenly you say, you know, Monday you shoot. Oh, okay. <laughs> And then you start shooting and you're like frustrated and then you're frustrated and you're frustrated. Then actor starts to leave because, you know, that guy finished it. So you feel like, okay, now we have a few more days, a few more days. And then you're relieved. And of course you're grieving the, the end of it. But then you go back to the editing mm -hmm. and it's fantastic because you are two people only in a room. Yeah, so let's talk about the editing. So your editor was Marco Costa. Yeah. This is, you've worked with him before. I had done, um, when I did Bones and all, I had done with him We Are Who We Are, my TV show. And he was the second assistant of Walter Fasano, my longtime editor and very good friend. Uh, but for life, we find ourselves to be finding each other again yes. on Bones and all. And now he ended up making also challengers with me. I mean, he's an incredible editor. He's super young, so he can, and I can like say to him, I need you at two o'clock in the morning, can you come? Sure. He would never say no to me, right? I cannot say that to Walter. Do you have any rituals, uh, just kind of going back to production, like, I'm not, not talking about like carrying crystals or anything, but like during production, I think it's a, a very lonely endeavor, directing. Everyone yes. has their teams, everyone, like, everyone in this room knows what that feels like. But do you have rituals or things that you do, habits that help you feel happy, or like connected or kind of your head in the room or comfort you in some way? Well, I, 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 I had the privilege, like I guess all of us, to, sh to share the experience with people that I grew up making films and they're a sort of surrogate family to me and they're very close friends of mine. So to be surrounded by them and to say, you know what, we're doing a new thing and it's, and it's fun and it's a new experiment. It's a good sensation, to be honest. Mm. I also have a practice of interior design and I work on it in between takes. So no that, way. That's my routine. Really? Yes. Yeah, I do. Wow. It's easy to send an email. I don't like the, those styles. Make those other styles. <laughs> That's pretty good. It's true, though. <laughs> um, when you, one question I, I'm quite interested in is how, like, uh, you've written for screen before. You didn't write this screenplay. How do you find the images and the sonic world when you're, like, it's a, I feel like it's a very different entry point when you're writing yourself How I, do have, you... I don't have the mystique of writing I think it's like I think the idea of writing your script and being the kind of carrier of the authorship of the movie because of that it's a little bit blasé and a little bit boring I think it's a visual medium you know like the script you get and you need a great writer because the writer can have great Actor, uh, sorry, great character development, great 
dialogue, you know. Mm. It's about having something that you can see with coldness and betray it constantly, but at the same time finding ways through it that makes it visual. You know, I don't know if I made myself clear, but with the text that is not coming from you, you are a distance that makes you empowered to do what you need to do. I'm old school in that. Like, I believe that you don't need to write your scripts as a writer, as a director. Impersonal you, not you. Yeah, no, I... I He's a great writer and director. I feel like I have to, I feel like I have to write in order to be able to see the thing. Because those, the, the camera is. When the I write, a, when I write a movie, I, I I get lost into like it's like it's like Russian dolls. Can I say Russian? Russian dolls, <laughs> because uh, you you say okay, they are sitting on, in two chairs and there is a table in front of them. Then you have to describe the table. Is it round, square? I lo- I get lost in these kind of minus mm-hmm. minus minuscule details. So I mean, like when you get a script and they say they are they write they are talking in a in a theater, you can then. It create the world out of it. Were there specific paintings or images or or music from your personal life or from artists that you've discovered uh, that inspired the form or texture or scenes or details in in the film? Certainly, I I've been. Uh, since I decided that I was going to make the movie and the movie was happening, I immediately went back to William Eggleston's work, which was very helpful because it gave us a great insight onto America, on how to see America, and on the light that we could try to find in America. And it was a very great guide for me and for uh, Arseni, for sure. And I was listening a lot to Jack Bruce, that eventually didn't make the cut into the movie as source music. But his beautiful, melancholic voice was quite of a, of a companion. Um, I want to talk about uh, your players in the film, mm. Timothy Chalamet. Uh, at what point did you know that you, like when you first read the script, that you wanted him? He triggered my desire to make the movie completely because I was liking the script very much, but then when the character shows up... Uh, I thought like of him immediately. I thought that he could have been perfect embodiment of it. And so I finished reading the script. I told Dave that I loved it and I wanted to do it, but I was going to commit to doing it if Timothy was going to make it. And I then sent the script to Timothy and he read it quite soon and he was in Rome by by chance. I live in Milan. I went to Rome, we met, and we agreed to make the movie just quite soon. And so how quickly did it then get moving and get made after that? It was between... Uh, I got the script in October, early October, and we decided... The movie was greenlit in the beginning of November, and then we were shooting in April. Wow, so that's actually really quick. Yeah, yeah it, it was helpful that um, we could put it together in Italy. It was fully financed from Italy, the movie. We didn't have to go through all the... Um, things of in studio funding or independent financiers in America, which would have triggered like the bond and a lot of problems that would have been probably slow downing the movie. Also it was good because Timothy was needed in June. So I could tell to my financiers, like, if you want to be part of this, we have to do it now, otherwise we lose him. And they said, sure. And Taylor Russell, how did you find her? And how did, how did you know she was the right person to play Marin? 
I, I, I didn't figure the character of Marin while reading the script the way I did figure Timothy or I figured like Michael Stolberg for, uh, for Jake or Chloe. All these people I knew I wanted in the movie since I started reading the script. Uh, but then in the weeks uh, uh, between Timothy saying I'm going to do it and putting together the, the, the financing, I was ruminating and, I, and I, then I started to think to this great movie called Waves by Trey Schultz. And I and I started to think more and more about her in that movie, so I I asked her to talk to her and meet her, and we had a great Zoom. And I saw in in this girl that I was seeing in the in the, in the Zoom a woman of, of steely determination and great passion, but at the same time I felt she was kind of an artist ready to go for a very bold experiment. So the conversation made me sure about that, and so a few days later I offer her the role. And I said, do you want to do it? It's yours if you want it. In terms of rehearsing, um, I think, obviously, directors, actors have their own way of preparing for a role. How did you work with... Do you like rehearse? Do you rehearse? Do you like rehearsing? And what up, is rehearsing? Up until Challengers, I actually never rehearsed, ever. You, oh, right. <laughs> so... My rehearsal, and that's mm. something that someone must have heard it, on... on Call Me By Your Name was asking Army and Timothy to a uh, French kiss in front of me to see if they were going for it. And they did it. And I said, okay, done. We can then shoot the movie. Um, for Suspiria, of course, uh, Mia and Dakota had to do a lot of uh, training. Yeah. But no, I never rehearse. Um, this movie, we never we didn't rehearse. We did some tests, makeup and hair tests to create the look and, the and, and costume design tests. But we never rehearsed. We just went on set on the first day and then we blocked the scene and we shoot. The movie I did now, Challengers, because I think it's, as I said, very boring and uh, annoying to be far from home and being doing a movie. And I, <laughs> I, I said, you know what, let's entertain the concept of rehearsals. So I rehearsed for like a month and a half with the, the three actors that play in the movie. And it was like like theater, four hours a day. Did you like that? Reading the script and standing up and yeah, it was very, very, very fun, very, a lot of fun and very insightful. When you had, when the cast came on board, did they, did the characters, obviously the characters are going to change somewhat because they're bringing, you have real people now. Did the characters evolve in quite surprising ways once I'm talking about Mark or Timothy or Taylor? How well, the, the people, the, it, Maren changes. She goes from being a girl to become a woman. Mm. And it was uncanny to see how Taylor was going there with this. Because again, the movie was shot almost in sequence. So you could see that. Um, uh, I think that Sally is like a compressed machine that goes more and more intensely toward explosion, and you could see that energy. Uh, and I think that uh, for Timothy, it was more about like showing like this heartbreaking sense of being lost and trying to grab somehow to the possibility of not being lost, but not succeeding completely. Did Timothy and Taylor connect very quickly. Did they have time? Yeah, yeah. I think they knew each other before. Ah, okay. I guess, but yeah, yeah. Also, we were like in the Midwest. Yes. It was like a bunch of Italians and <laughs> few Americans and some British. 
in the Midwest. <laughs> Thank God for the European Championship. We could see some match every now and then. We won, Italy won. <laughs> Against England. <laughs> and Mark Rallens was in the room with us. And then we had to shoot all the murder afterwards. <laughs> right, okay. Um, the cinematography in this film is stunning. Um, Arseni Kachaturan? Yeah, perfect. Uh, he's like, what, 28? Like, just now he must be 29. Genius, like, brilliant filmmaker. I had kids around me, kids. Like, <laughs> Matt Marks, like 24, the prop master. The editor, 28. I first saw his film, that's the only way I, I saw him in, firstly, did Beginning, yeah. which is a beautiful film. Masterpiece. How did you, how did you work with him? Like, did you have a kind of approach already in your mind in terms of a kind of style or an aesthetic? He's very, or? he's very uh, literate. He knows cinema very well. Huh. And he's very bright young man who wants to, he's very ambitious. So when I said to him, why don't we go for like an Owen Reisman kind of light? He knew everything about Owen Reisman. And he was very happy about it. And then we, and he said, like, Vilma Sigmund. I said, sure. And what about Nestor mm. Almendros? So we were thinking about these great masters from foreign, foreign masters working, not Owen, but working in, in America in the 70s. So we were trying to see the 80s through the lens of the 70s. That's how the approach went. And of course, Eggleston was a great part of it. You shot uh, Can We Buy Your Name on one camera, I think, with one lens, like a 35mm, yeah, I think. 35mm. Yeah. Obviously, that's not the case with this film. Um, we shot, we wanted to go for only one lens as well here. We, 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 we picked the 25, but then in the process of making it, I thought that we had to cheat on ourselves because there were moments in which the movie needed to go away from the. Uh, dictatorship self-imposed of the one lens. So we were lucky because I said, well, we will shoot with only one lens, but have let's have the case of all the lenses. In Call Me with only one lens. We literally had two 35 millimeters lenses and that was it. Didn't have anything else. What, what I really liked was the zooms in this. There's Because there's, you're playing with um, a point of view. The story's told from Marin's point of view mostly but we do go to Lee's point of view in his dreams. Um, but there's also a kind of a third view, I, I thought, in this kind of a um, kind of voyeuristic feel. Um, and I didn't really get it actually until the second time I watched the film. I loved the shots kind of following behind the truck that's very kind of handheld. It's, it's very loose head. And I, I don't know why there was something about it that's, that kind of stood out to me initially. I didn't really understand why. And then on the second time, I was like, ah, is that is that Sully following them? There's something very kind of, um, of them being watched. We see Marin watching, but we're also watching her. Can you talk a bit about point of view, what your approach was with Arseni? With I think the approach the was always that, uh, I think the point of view is the point of view of the film. That's of the spectator, not of the, any, other, any characters in particular. And what do you mean by that point of view of the film? It's like you see things through a, a perspective that might give you insightfulness in the story on the character. It's not literally someone else doing that in no. the movie towards someone else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the zoom is... is I, I love zooms very, very much. 
uh, it's inquisitive. There is a question mark always with the Zoom that I like about. Were there any major departures or restructuring uh, in the edit? Oh, yes. Big time. Because we shot much, many, much more. At a certain stage, uh, Emaren and Lee, after they, they go back from Nebraska to, with the, they go to Minnesota, uh, they, they hitchhike and they are collected by a girl who is a, a young uh, student who's going to go in, in Ann Arbor to attend the university. And uh, they, they get a lift from her all the way to Ann Arbor. They befriend her, and she's kind enough to say to them, "You could stay with me one this night before you find a way lodging." And uh, they trick her by telling her that uh, they are brother and sister. And then Maren leaves Lee alone with her. She wants clearly she's seduced by Lee, and Lee she tries to seduce Lee. And Maren goes to see the Last Temptation of Christ in a theater, 1988. And uh, then she goes back home and basically we learn that uh, Lee has killed the girl in order to take over the apartment and give the identity of the girl to Maren. This was something that was a very long debate that happened between me, Dave, and Timothy, and then everybody else. Because what eventually we realized that we were making them into criminal lovers. And that wasn't the one, the right thing to do. Because they they were kind of changing in that moment in a way that was not earned. And neither the movie wanted to be cynical. As I said, it's, I wanted to be ultra-romantic. So regretfully, because we, we had shot all of that, we had the wonderful Francesca Scorsese playing the girl, um, uh, we, the movie really had to let this long section, was like 20 minutes go, also, the movie didn't have, the script didn't have the dreams, but I have a lot of fun oh, making right, dreams. Yeah, yeah. I love dreams yeah. in movie, so we we use the we use some part that we didn't use in the long the, from the longer cut, and we made them into dream. And during the shoot, I was shooting stuff for dreams, and Dave Kajanek was like, "Oh no, no, I don't want the dream, I don't." Want. <laughs> and we put the dream in Lee's dream. Is that his father? Uh, the, the, yeah, 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 yeah. She constantly dreams of her father. This is a movie about uh, children being abandoned by fa- by parents or almost being killed by fathers or mothers. Mm. So they are haunted by that. The film's obviously played at various festivals. You won Best Director at Venice. The Silver a great feeling, to be Congratulations. honest. Thank you. Thank you. It was very good. Good feeling, good feeling. I think I felt like, you know, I don't have to go anywhere now. I can stay here for like this day. And I spent a day in Venice just beaming. Usually I would say, okay, next. But that's the thing, it's like, okay, so when I said like, are you satisfied? It's that kind of feeling of like, what makes you feel like, ah, okay, I'm okay. Or I did okay, this is fine. That gold, that silver lion did in a way. (laughs) But I'm not vain, but it's like, it's symbolic. There is a symbol in it that is quite strong. And you don't understand until you go there. I go, I went, they told me you have to come back. There is an award for you. 
it's one of the top awards. So I was like, okay, great, it's one of the lions. But I did. Really uh, and then someone said, you know, don't be too happy because <laughs> documentaries, that's the year of documentaries. Okay, good. And then I went on the stage thinking, okay, I'm going to say thank you, thank you. And then I was like, I didn't know what to say. It was like almost like starting to cry. It's crazy. It's a crazy feeling. It, it, it's beautiful to see the rec to be recognized. It's actually the first major award I ever won in my life. So it's good. It's a nice feeling. I did read that you put all of your awards in a wardrobe, though. Is most it in a wardrobe? Of them, most of them. The lion is in the kitchen. Okay. But I like to cook a lot, so why not? Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thank you wonderful. so much. This podcast was recorded at a Directors UK member event. You can hear more episodes of the Directors UK podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or your favourite podcatcher. Directors UK is a professional association for film and TV directors with over 7,500 members. Find out more about us at directors.uk.com.